Eli Wiesel was 15 when he was deported to the Auschwitz concentration camp in May of 1944. 15 years old. He would survive, but his parents and his younger sister would not. Listen to his account of that first night in the concentration camp in his well-known book, Night. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Maybe that wasn't the way you were expecting me to begin my first sermon back after sabbatical with such a heavy tone. But our text this morning calls for this kind of tone. This morning, we're going to be grappling with the reality of injustice in Psalm chapter 10. I'd invite you to turn there now. Psalm 10, if uh, you're using the pew Bibles that are in front of you, it's on, it begins on page 475. As you're turning there, let me just remind you, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. Uh, or the psalm, song book, the, the hymn book of the Bible. It's a collection of songs and prayers directed to the God of Israel. Uh, the psalms contain prayers of confession, thong, songs of thanksgiving, songs of praise. Uh, but over one-third of the psalms are lament. And listen to Psalm 10.1, how it begins. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Here we have at the very beginning of Psalm 10, the psalmist lamenting a reality that probably all of us have faced, whether we believe in God or not. Where are you, God? The youth just this last Wednesday considered with uh, Lindsay Matsuoka and youth group a song of lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And this psalm is multifaceted. It's not just lament. It's also a plea for justice. I wonder if you ever get angry at injustice, if you ever find yourself secretly hoping that the wicked will get what they deserve. Well, look at Psalm 10 too. In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. Psalm 10 is going to also teach us not just to lament, but how to humbly channel our anger at injustice. 
how to humbly channel our anger at injustice. While none of us have faced the horrors that Elie Wiesel did that we considered at the beginning in Auschwitz, I trust that suffering is a familiar companion to most of us, all of us. You know, for some of us, I would assume that maybe some of you here, you're suffering even today, your pain or our trial that you're going through is so intense that it's uh, no small miracle that you're even here this morning. Here's my prayer for us as we walk through Psalm 10 together is that God would help us to grapple with the reality of injustice and humble faith. I pray that he's going to teach us to pray in that context and that we would grow in our confidence that God's going to act according to his character as revealed in his word. That's my prayer. And I think Psalm 10 is asking us a question. Pretty clear from verse 1, where is God? Where is God? In particular, where is God when the wicked boast and the humble pray? Where is God when the wicked boast and the humble pray? We're going to consider that question in two parts, and then we will answer that question in our third and final point this morning. So three-point sermon, the first two parts, we'll consider the question, and then my final point, we'll briefly consider the answer to that question. So first, let's deal with the question, where is God when the wicked boast and the humble pray? So point one, when the wicked boast. Turn, turn with me to Psalm chapter 10, verse 3. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks there's no accountability since there's no God. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. Cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes a victim and drags him in his net. So he, that victim, is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. Well, we don't know if David, the probable author of this psalm, had some specific bad dudes in mind when he wrote this psalm. David wrote this psalm not necessarily because of a specific situation, that might have been the occasion, but he writes in general, painting a picture of a typical wicked man. Did you see that in the verses? Did you hear that? Uh, So he does that so that people at any time and in any place can know how to pray in a world filled with wicked people. This might not be what you're in the mood to hear this morning, but most of this psalm, the majority of the psalm that I just read, is plunging us into the heart of darkness. So let's take a tour of the nature of evil, shall we? And I think by looking at evil honestly, we'll be better prepared to answer the question that many of of us have asked or will ask in times of trial. 
where is God? So we're just going to walk through this psalm essentially line by line. So I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Verse 3, for the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. How does wickedness start? It starts with a proud heart. A heart that is entitled. A heart that boasts. A heart that has deep cravings, desires, greed. The oppressor begins simply as a person with deep passions. He thinks he deserves prosperity, security, pleasure. And he begins to feel superior to others. He feels like he deserves this even if it comes at the cost of others. But he doesn't just feel superior to others. Did you notice that in verse 3? He feels superior to the Lord. He curses and despises God. You only curse and despise people that you feel superior to. God gets in the way of the lifestyle that this boastful, proud man wants to live. God's getting in the way of his greed and his cravings. Look at verse 4. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks there's no accountability since there's no God. The one who was a dreamer for gain has now become a schemer for that gain. We see the arrogance show up again, you know, boastful verse 3, arrogant verse 4. And this arrogance has now led him to deny the God that he cursed back up in verse 3. You see the progression? And this is convenient for our greedy boaster. Just do away with, in order to get rid of accountability, we get rid of God. So you can pursue your cravings guilt-free. Verse 5, his ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. Our, our dreamer turned schemer is now a scoffer. He wonders why people can't work as hard as he has. What's everybody else's problem? Is everybody else just expecting a handout? This is a self-made man. The one who despises and then denies God is naturally going to scoff at others who haven't been as successful as he has. He boasts about his self-made security. And that's what we continue to see in verse 6. He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation. I will be without calamity. You know, this scoffer's done well for himself. That's what the psalmist is reflecting on. He, he, in, the, in the eyes of the world, this guy has done well. He's secure. He's, he begins to convince himself, I will never be moved. He has a big, big nest egg. He has a trust fund for each of his kids. Verse 7, cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. Okay, we didn't expect that turn between 6 and 7. It's like, what happened there? Despite being so successful, despite probably being praised by the world, notice what's in his mouth in verse 7. It maybe doesn't come right out all the time. He doesn't like curse like a sailor. It's under his tongue. His mouth is filled with this malice, cursing, and deceit because he wants more. Thinks he deserves more. Venom is ready to spew forth at anyone who would cross him, question him. You don't want to cross this guy. If you do, well, verses 8 through 9 might happen to you. Verse 8, he waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes a victim and then drags him in his net. Well, that violence, that deceit that filled his mouth has spread to his arms and legs. 
Uh, the wicked wait to take advantage of the helpless. Now you might think, okay, when David probably wrote this psalm, maybe he was considering an instance in his life where he was lit, where David was literally being hunted like an animal. Uh, sure, yes, that might have been the occasion for this psalm, but it is poetic. This is not literal. He's not literally talking about lions and thickets so that we might consider what this looks like today. I couldn't help but think of the online world. People lurking behind their devices, waiting to consume others for their pleasure. Message boards, comments, social media, waiting to spew forth hate, division, bringing people down to lift themselves up. Verse 10, so he is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. We've all seen this movie. The good king is overthrown. The bad king comes, begins his reign of terror. Maybe because of the lion in the thicket back in verse 9. I couldn't help but think of Lion King, you know, when Scar overthrows Mufasa and he uses his strength to just begin a reign of darkness. Verse 11, this is what the wicked man says. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. All right, so we have looked through the window of Scripture at the heart of the wicked. This is the nature of evil. We've seen that his heart curses, despises, and denies God. We'd, we've heard him speak words or at least have a mouth full of scoffing, deceit, and cursing. And now we hear him talking to himself. Did you notice that? Did you know how much self-talk there is going on, verse 4, verse 11, particularly about God? And by verse 11, he's, he's sure of himself. He's drawing conclusions about the way that God is because of his wickedness, because of his immorality. Since he has been able to get away with so much, since he's done well for himself, he concludes, well, God has hit in his face. And based on the past, based on this window of success and immorality, he will never see. You see the arrogance about the future because of a very small sample size in this guy's past? You might be thinking, I'm sure glad I'm not like him. And I don't think we are meant as the church to relate to verses 3 through 11. These are the oppressors. These are the wicked people. Yes, we have much in common with them. In fact, a point of continuity, it's at this point when wickedness and darkness reign that we realize how similar oppressor and oppressed can be in their attitude towards God. Doesn't it seem like God has forgotten that he has hidden his face, that he will never see when we hear of another school shooting, another miscarriage, another natural disaster, a lost job, financial insecurity, another war of aggression 
another manic episode, another bout with depression, another divorce, another wayward child, another suicide. I could keep on going, but we know. Where is God? Do we come to the same conclusion as verse 11? God must have hidden his face, and he will never see. You know, in our pain, it's difficult to see God. All, all we see is our pain. That's just what we feel. We feel our pain all around us. We wonder what God is up to. But we must not come to the proud conclusion of the wicked man in verse 11. Again, it's no wonder throughout history that the oppressed becomes the oppressor. Just give it enough time. Because the one suffering and the one inflicting the suffering can both easily enter the same self-made dark reality. God must be dead. God must not care. A world without God is the reality that the wicked create so they can do whatever they want. And it's the reality that the oppressed think they have no other choice but to accept. For if God were here, why? Our oppressed lamenter, our worship leader in Psalm 10 is not going to let us go down that path of proud denial that God cares and that he's here. He keeps us from it. And notice how he doesn't keep us from going down that path. He doesn't tell us, well, some people have it worse than you. He doesn't say, look on the bright side of life, zippity-doo-dah, you know, where everything is good, you just got to have positive thinking, just keep going. No, Scripture is brutally honest about wickedness and evil. It never minimizes it. It never says that your pain and that suffering isn't real. Unlike many religions, Christianity looks at wickedness square in the face, and it says, it hurts. It's awful. It's horrible. It's death. But it doesn't then conclude that therefore God is dead or that he doesn't care. No, instead, we jump back to verse 1 and we direct that pain to God and say, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Why does it seem like you have forgotten? Notice that the psalmist isn't talking to himself. He's talking to God. He's taking his pain to God. Where is God when the wicked boast? Well, he's listening to the prayers of the humble, for one. That's what we're going to consider in our second point. Where is God when the humble pray? The humble pray, verses 12 through 15. Rise up, Lord God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why has the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account, but you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. 
Break the arm of the wicked, evil person until you look for wickedness, but it can't be found. The proud talk about God, the humble talk to God. In verse 11, the proud assume that God had forgotten. In verse 12, the humble ask God not to forget the oppressed. In verse 11, the proud says that God will never see. In verse 14, the humble tell God, oh, you yourself have seen. In verse 7, trouble was under the tongue of the proud. In verse 14, the humble pray, God, you yourself have seen that trouble. In verse 3, the proud despise God. In verse 13, the humble ask God, what are you going to do about all these wicked people despising you? We could keep going. You know, just, just the other day, I was, I was feeling discouraged. I was feeling like I was throwing a pity party for myself in my, in my head. And it was so easy to go down the downward spiral of just listening to myself, feeling like I am the victim, people aren't treating me right, and just listen to how someone else has wronged me, someone else doesn't understand. But in God's providence, I was meditating on this psalm, and I thought, what does the psalmist do? Does he just listen to himself, or does he remind himself who God is and then direct those prayers to God. One of my favorite texts in all of the Old Testament is the end of Exodus 2, where the people of God, Israel, do this when they're enslaved in Egypt. Just read a brief section of the end of Exodus 2. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. You know, God was the one who put Israel in this situation. Uh, Israel could have grown bitter and said to God, forget you. You know, serving and worshiping and praying to you doesn't work. Like, it just doesn't work. We're still enslaved. And so we're going to transfer our loyalties over to the gods of the Egyptians because that's working great for them. But instead of accusing God and abandoning him based on their experience, they cry out to him. So in that passage there at the end of Exodus 2, we see the cry of an oppressed people. And we got, see God remembers. It's not like he forgot does it mean that God remembered? Well, his remembrance of his people was like the kinetic energy that was about to burst into action to save his people and judge his enemies, just judge their enemies just as he promised. And this is what our psalmist is asking God to do in verse 12 of Psalm 10. It says, rise up, Lord God. Notice the covenant name of the Lord. He's the God of his people. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. In verse 13, our psalmist starts talking back to the doubts of the wicked. The, the wicked despise God and say that God will not demand an account. But that can't be true from what I know of God. That can't be true. Look at verse 14. But you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. Our psalmist is like, the proud don't know God like I know him. I want to, if, you, if you're a not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or you're not sure if you know God through a relationship with Christ, I just want to clear something up. Just clarify something real quick. I'm sure you've heard 
or read or seen Christians doing some pretty wicked stuff. Uh, At times, we're proud like the wicked. At times, we're grasping for power and influence just like the wicked are. Uh, I'm sure you've heard and read about evangelicals in the news, and you think, thank God I'm not like them. And in some ways, you know, I don't blame you. Uh, But consider with me what we see in the midst of all that baggage with Christianity. I want you to look at the source. We're going back to 10th century BC here, and I think what we see in verse 14 is the essence of Christianity. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. This is who Jesus came for. This is who God helps. Those who recognize, maybe after many attempts, that they cannot help themselves. That that's not working out. Christ came not for the self-sufficient, not for the strong, not for the proud, not for the healthy, but for the helpless. And we recognize that the story of Scripture has one consistent message, that though God often seems far away, God drew near in the person of his Son. And he, he drew near to us to meet our greatest need to forgive us our sins, our rebellion against God, and to give us the hope of eternal life. But we must come to an end of ourselves. We must recognize that we are the helpless, that we are the ones in need. We need a family, a faith. We need a father through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what it means to be a Christian, to come to an end of yourself and to put your trust in the only one who can truly help You know, if you're interested in what it would look like for you to entrust yourself to the one who helps, I know that there are a ton of people around you who would love nothing more than to talk to you about that after the service or this afternoon. I know I would count it a privilege to talk to you about what it would look like for you to begin to take steps to entrust yourself to a God like this, a God who does hear, a God who will rise up and help those who entrust themselves to him. Let's look at the last verse of this section in verse 15. The humble prayer is continuing, but it's maybe not how we expect. Verse 15 says, break the arm of the wicked evil person until you look for his wickedness, but it can't be found. You know, this made me think of one of my friends in college. Um, When she was little, her mom taught her and all her sisters to pray that God would burn down uh, strip clubs when they would pass them on the highway. She would lead the family in prayer that those would burn down. Um, I don't think that's a bad prayer, provided that there's nobody in them when they burn down, I guess. Uh, and I think because of verse 15, you know, this, in this psalm, we see a humble prayer for justice. Christians don't light the match. Christians don't take vengeance into their own hands. Um, so often... You know, when we are wronged personally, so think of personal wickedness directed at us, what's our knee-jerk reaction? We want to take revenge. That person's got to pay for what she said to me. Uh, I'll I'll show her. Uh, She'll regret that. He'll regret that. But our attempts at revenge are just puny. (laughs) Uh, It never never works out. Uh, Us trying to right wrongs uh, will only make things worse. As the people of God, we have a much better recourse, but it's going to take feeling helpless. 
feeling like you've come to an end of yourself and trusting yourself to God. We can do something as Christians that is much better and more effective and powerful than lighting the match or paying back for the ways that we've been wronged. We can pray to the God who hears and helps. Now, when we pray for justice, we also pray, as Jesus taught us, for the hearts of, our, for the hearts of those who hurt us, right? Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Um, but at the same time, we do pray for justice, that God would eliminate those who persist in pride and wickedness against him. And I think this is why it's so important that we learn to pray in community and together, because you know maybe your tendency, whether you always pray just um, they, in love for your enemies and you pray for their salvation, or if you tend to pray fire and brimstone judgment on your enemies. We need to find a good biblical balance, don't we? And we need to help one another to pray in love and for justice and hold those together in balance. So ask God to help you and consider maybe where you, you lean in that. Ask that you would pray according to God's compassionate character, but also according to his perfect justice. Um, really, there, there are different sides of the same coin. Um, and also, we need to remember as we pray for these things, as we pray for justice, God's not going to act according to our timetable. That's kind of what makes him God and us not. We trust and trust ourselves to him. We trust his coming justice as the returning king. And that's what we're going to consider as the answer to this, where are you, God, and our third and final point. How do we answer the question, where is God? Third and finally, the Lord is on his throne. Look at verses 16 through 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. So how do we get from lament in verse 1 to the confidence that we see here in verse 16? How did we go from, where are you, God, to the Lord is king forever and ever? David's confidence has been growing as he's been praying, hasn't it? As he's considered who he prays to, he considers the Lord's reign. He considers the Lord's heart toward the humble and his power to work on behalf of the people who have entrusted themselves to him. Undoubtedly, I think the psalmist is calling to mind how the Lord has worked in the past, and that gives him confidence for the future. You know, I, I thought of it this way, or I, actually, I think I read this illustration in a book, but when a, when a doctor gives a toddler a shot, the toddler can conclude adults can't be trusted, right? I, I will never trust my mom again. Um, but a, a toddler, through tears and in the midst of the pain, will eventually reach back for her mom because that toddler intuitively knows that even though I don't understand why mom would bring me to this evil doctor who would inflict pain on me, I, I, know, I know my mom. I know she cares for me. I know she loves me. Even though there's many things I don't understand. Friends, we don't know why 
God inflicts the pain that he does on us. We hate it. We wish it would stop. Sometimes we get angry at God, but then we reach for him like a child because we know him. He has cared for us before, and because he is king forever and ever, we know we are in good hands. We will know he will forever care for us. So how do you know? How do you know, though, that he is king forever and ever? How do you know that he will continue to care for us? Well, Psalm 10, and all the psalms of lament and cries for justice were taken up by our king of love 2,000 years ago. The people of Israel were lamenting 2,000 years ago in Israel, where are you, God? Seriously, your glory's left the temple. You know, Rome is crushing us. When are you going to restore Israel? There's been no prophet for hundreds of years. Meanwhile, as they're lamenting, God had, was answering uh, their prayer. He had drawn near. Only a few were given eyes to see that the king was among them. This man who was not who they were, they were expecting. And isn't that how God almost always answers our prayers? This king who is lowly and humble in heart, as we considered last week, and he would be crucified. He would take up a prayer of lament on his lips, even with his dying breath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not all that different from the lament we have in Psalm 10:1. Where are you, God? You see, our king, the, the Lord who is king forever and ever, he's pretty familiar with what it feels like to be oppressed. Like we saw in verses 3 through 11. He was oppressed and beaten down. Uh, the wicked seemed strong that dark day. And it seemed as though God had forgotten that he had hidden his face. No, in considering the suffering of our king and how him on the cross was really his coronation to his throne, it made me think of the poem, Jesus of the Scars. It concludes this way. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. We know that Jesus cares about our suffering because of his scars. We know he listens to our cries because he came to meet our greatest need. If this is how God would enthrone his king forever and ever, how will he not also hear the prayer that he taught us to pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. You think God's not going to hear that prayer? After all he has done? You think he's going to be deaf to his children who lament and their suffering? Do you think the humble and the wicked will go to the grave without an accounting? So where is God? when suffering and wickedness swirl around the church 
and even inside of us. Here he comes. It's nearing the time when people will no longer say, where did God go? But where did evil go? Where is God? Praise God that we see him through eyes of faith and hope. And we say, the Lord is king forever and ever. And he's coming soon to make all things new. Is that your confidence today? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning confessing that we are often filled with doubts. Our pain often speaks louder than your word. We so often have a short-term memory rather than considering your faithfulness to us in the past. We look at our circumstances. We look at how our life has not turned out the way that we would have planned or hoped. And we begin to take matters into our own hands. We so often begin to try to fix things or just to despair. Lord, we pray that you would help us take our pain to you. Lord, we can't even do that on our own. We need you to help us. But Lord, we thank you that you are the helper. Just as you have helped your people for thousands of years, and even now as you are helping us and helping millions of saints who cry out to you, oh Lord, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us as a church uh, to keep the cross before us, to look to you in faith, and to remember that this world is not our home, and that because you promise that you are coming soon, that we can bank everything on that. So, Lord, we say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. And may your grace be with us until that day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.